Well, good morning, Woodside. Good morning. Uh, man, I am so nervous now that there are so many people here. It wasn't like the 8 o'clock service. Um, I'm nervous for two reasons. Um, number one, I don't think I've worn such nice clothes since my wedding day. And um, this is the first time I get to preach in front of Woodside, in front of a morning congregation. So I feel greatly privileged. and I'm really blessed. So um, it's, it's so good to be with you today. Um, you know, as I prepared this sermon, I felt a lot of weight because it's, it's not like a Sunday evening service, not like a Bible study. There have just been um, so many more talented preachers who have stood here and who have preached, and there's just high expectation. There's, there are shoes to fill here, and so um, I am so privileged to come and bring you God's Word, and um, I thank you because as you guys um, critique me, as you guys help me along with my calling to ministry, these moments are the ones that I will remember forever, and I will also use in discerning my future call into ministry. So I am really privileged, and I don't take lightly the ability to stand before all of you today, so thank you. Um, I'm also partially nervous because this is also a very a sacred time. Um, I know perhaps we don't think about it when we're waking up in the morning and getting ready, but we are coming together on a Sunday to hear God's Word. And I think sometimes we think that worship is a time of just music and song, but if God's word is synonymous with himself and we are opening together and encouraging one another with it, I think we are doing something profoundly spiritual. And when we learn and encourage one another from God's word, from the pulpit, I believe that it's wholehearted, pleasing worship to God. So what I wanted to do, um, Matt's been preaching on marriage for the last two weeks. We want to kind of continue with the theme of the church and things that happen um, at church. So I kind of wanted to talk about a buzzword that's been maybe floating around some of our conversations here at church. And that word is um, community. Um, community, by a quick Google definition, um, I know Matt said he hated it like last sermon when people do definitions, but a quick Google definition is uh, a community is a feeling of fellowship with others as a result of sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals. And so I think most of us would probably find that definition satisfactory. But I want you to take a minute and think about what do you, what do you think when you hear the word community? Because if you really think about it, every human craves community. Um, with the dawn of the internet of social media and, um, and the internet, I think 95% of us here either have or know what Facebook is, right? Um, we've got Twitter, we've got Snapchat, we've got Instagram, we upload pictures of ourselves. I mean, there are a bunch of things that we do to try to get community even when we're by ourselves. So we're looking to get that like, that view, that hit, that prop, the thumbs up. And I think down to our very core, our desire is to be known and to know. We desire to be uh, accepted and to be acknowledged. So if community is about uh, fellowship with others based on common attitudes and interests, based on this Webster's definition, well, how does God define community? What does community look like in our church? How is it conducted? What are the foundations of community so we can continue in it? And is community more than just a feeling? So when we ourselves are um, thinking deeply about current events and we're getting ready to post that next Facebook post that's going to solve world problems, um, I think it goes without saying that we need to look to God's word to see what he has to say on the topic. What is God's purpose in community? What is his definition? How do we do community well? Is the outside world doing community better than we are? And what makes Christian community so unique? So my goal today is to present a case to you, of course, appealing to scripture, God's word, because fundamentally, if I gave mine, it would be flawed. Community, true community in the body of Christ, is much more than a feeling of fellowship based on common attitudes and interests. It's much more than posting that picture on Instagram and hoping you get 50 likes by the end of the day. 
It is much more simply than attending church or even going to church events. But rather, I think God's word says community is fellowship with others, not based on fleeting interests, but rather it is built upon the gospel. Community is rooted in knowing a person, Jesus Christ. Community is something deeply connected to the very character and nature of God. And if so, community will become most effective when we turn our thoughts, our desires, and our feelings, and the emotions that we have toward God based on His revealed Word. But how do we arrive there, and how, what does this mean for our community here at Woodside? Well, I would like to turn to Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Turn with me there, if you would. Let's put our focus on today's scripture for today. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 can be found, I think you have the same Bible as me, 977, page 977, it's toward the end. Uh, and we're going to pick up right uh, at the beginning of chapter 4, and we're going to go right down to 16. So if you would, please follow along as I read. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of son, the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds it up itself in love. So with that said, and with that prompt, um, I'd like to discuss three things today. Number one, I want to discuss God's nature and our image. I want to discover how these things relate to one another. Number two, I think we need to understand the gospel in such a way that Christ in salvation has purchased our unity to live in fellowship with one another. So in other words, what did Christ do to give us community? And number three, I want to look at a few practical ways with this information now we can love one another and grow in community. But before we jump in, I think it's only appropriate that we pray. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. Uh, what a beautiful day it is out. Um, Lord, I, I just... I'm so privileged to stand here and to preach to my fellow congregation members, members of the church, people, Lord, who want to hear your word and want to know you and grow. And I sincerely ask, Lord, that you would remove the faintness of my heart, the nervousness, and all the, the nerves that I feel right now, and that you would make way for your Holy Spirit to come and to the people here to hear your word, to be encouraged, to be provoked in thought, and that you would be magnified and Christ would be seen as most glorious. So, Lord, be with me. 
Um, be with the fluency of what I'm saying, not for my glory, but all for yours. And I thank you in your son's name. Amen. So Ephesians, um, most of us know it's a book written by Paul to the church in Ephesus. Uh, some of my favorite verses can be found in Ephesians. So I'm going to read a little bit more for you. Chapter 1, verse 4 through 7. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as th- sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which with he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And I think the one that I cherish and I struggle with the most is chapter 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I feel myself turning red because I don't do that very well. <laughs> um, but you may notice through Paul's um, writing in Ephesians is he's very particular about his speech when he talks about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. See, the Father is always getting the honor and the praise because of the glory and the work of the Son. And it's always happening through the transformation and the power of the Spirit. And as we reach Ephesians 4, Paul begins to make a case for unity in Christ. Um, by using himself as an example of one who is suffering in prison for the sake of the gospel. And oddly now, he's asking us to walk in a very similar manner. So the first question that came to my mind as I read the first two verses is, well, Paul, what is this call that you're talking about? Well, some of the verses I just recalled from earlier in Ephesians give us a glimpse to what Paul is referring to. Our call is from God, who in eternity past predestined us to know him and to love him. Now, I add that we are not attempting to earn this call to Christ. Rather, God had called us in Christ already before the foundations of the world. And we have done nothing worthy of our call to God. Rather, the goodness of Christ and his work on the cross that was given to him by the Father before creation gives our calling a huge level of seriousness. I mean, this was something planned before time began. God had foreknowledge of it. And it gives our call great weight. And at least, at the very least, some thoughtful attention needs to be given to it. So then Paul urges us, urges us in the text to lead a life that reflects this worth. It is not a simple matter that God has laid down his life for you. The creator of the heavens and earth was thinking of you before he even spoke, let there be light. His love for you surpasses anything you know, and his love is what unites us together. As we look at the mercy and grace of God has given to each one of us, adopted people of Him, we need to walk in a manner worthy of this call. I want to spend a quick minute looking at the word walk in verse 1. To me, when I think of walking, it's something that's habitual, something that happens daily, whether you're thinking about it or not. Something frequent, something that's always present and is always with you. And people are watching that. Uh, My friend Mike and Rita happen to be PT students. And if you guys notice me at any time, I'm always walking with a hunch. I don't really have nice posture. And so when I'm walking around, I don't look very appealing, and people are like, oh, is he grumpy or something? Like, and the worst part of it all is they're telling me now that if I continue hunching, I'm trying to do it right now, I'm trying to stand straight. Um, they're, they're telling me if I, if I continue in this way, I'm going to have poor health. It's going to affect my back. I'm going to have pain in the future. And so when Paul talks about walking, 
I almost think that you need to kind of give up this aura. You need to be strong. You need to build these things. And you need to have some kind of presence. You need to carry yourself well. And I think the young people call this swagger. You know, they walk around like, you know, with some like, cool attitude. But really, shouldn't we carry ourselves? I've always wanted to use swagger in a sermon. Uh, we, all, we should carry ourselves in a way that for people who don't have this knowledge, don't know about this calling, shouldn't we carry ourselves differently? Where God has rescued and redeemed and given new life, I mean, I want to emphasize, it's not because that we were somebody that God saved us. We were nobody. The very words in the beginning of Ephesians is that we were loved in eternity past. Not because of the goodness of us, or the, what God would foresee us to do that was good, or thinking that we would be a great team addition to Team God. No, we were enemies of God, yet He adopted us. He made a conscious effort to call us out of death into life, and now we have an inheritance that wasn't there before with God Almighty. Again, this is not because of our own righteousness, but because God the Son in love chose to lay down His life for us, to present us signed, sealed, and delivered to God as righteous, so that we could enjoy Him forever, to know Him forever, and be satisfied in Him forever. So now Paul is speaking about this calling. You know, he's in prison for it. He's speaking the gospel, thrown in prison. He's writing this letter, and he's urging us to lead and walk in a manner worthy of it. In verses 2 and 3, Paul clearly explains how this manner of worthiness would manifest itself. He gives a bunch of adjectives here. We need to be humble, loving, gentle, patient, and eager to maintain a unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now to me that sounds like a bunch of qualities I don't have. I'm certainly not humble. I'm gentle because I'm scrawny and Asian. Well, most people are scrawny Asian. And, and my wife would tell you that she's the one who's very patient to have made it with me this far. So when I look at these qualities of walking in a manner worthy of my calling, I think I fail this list big time. So how is Paul going to help me? What is he going to talk about in the next verses? What qualities are, do I need to have in order to... What qualities can I have and how is he going to impart this knowledge to me? And I think he reminds us of some very basic principles. If you will, he drops some Sunday school theology. Very basic. It goes on. There is one body, which is the church. There is one spirit. There is one hope, Jesus' death on a cross. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. There is one Father. And so we got Paul on repeat right now, talking about oneness over and over and over again. And he is using oneness to describe how we ought to live out our call. So we might produce a unity, a bond of peace. There is a goal. But again, what does this oneness between all of these things have to do with us and community? I want to briefly consider what I know many of us here would probably affirm and believe and say amen to, but I would be naive to think that everyone here knows what the word Trinity means or what the Trinity is. So I want to give a firm grasp on some specifics. We believe that God is three in one. God is not many, He is one. And He exists in three eternal persons. We know that God is one because His Scripture reveals that to us. In Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. In the New Testament, James 2 says, You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. In reference to Jesus and His deity, in Colossians 2.9, Paul says, For in Him, Jesus... The fullness of God dwells in bodily form. Thomas, doubting Thomas in John 20, after seeing Jesus resurrected, reaches out and touches his scar, and he says, 
my Lord and my God. These are not different representations of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We don't believe in polytheism, where we have three gods that we worship separately. No, the Bible rather teaches clearly that God is one. And besides Him, there is no other. Anything else is actually, in fact, idolatry. You are believing in a false god. And this is a, parado this is a paradox of our faith. It's a mystery of our faith, but it's a very real, objective reality. It is also a glorious truth that demonstrates a unique and powerful and communal God. And so we need to learn about it. We need to try and attempt to understand how God has revealed himself to us. Each person in the Trinity is equally God, equally powerful, equally all-knowing, equally present, and equally made up of God's substance. No one is less than the other. And no one is more powerful. They are united and they are harmonious. And here's the great part about that. Although all being of the same likeness and made up of the same divine nature, they each play a very different, unique role. They have a job, so to speak, their own unique job. This plays out in salvation as such. God the Father plans salvation in eternity past. Christ steps into human history, and then he accomplishes said plan. And the Holy Spirit appropriates and works that plan into the heart of God's elect. Now, the Father is the supreme authority. He's, he's the top dog. And the Son submits and gives glory to God the Father. And then the Holy Spirit even takes a lesser role, so to speak, and he just points and directs and gives glory to Jesus and God the Father. So what we have here is identity and distinction, equivalency, but difference. And there lies our perfect picture of community wrapped up in the very nature of God. There is no discord, there is no disunity in the Trinity. There's no power struggle to be at top, there's no private agenda. In their relationship, everything they do finds perfect harmony and unity, and they're all working toward a common goal and interest, which is to make much of God the Father. But accomplishing it through unique and distinct means. Our best finite representations of the Trinity are in fact fallen and limited. However, here is Paul calling us to look at the unity of God to probe the mystery of very distinct roles so that it can play itself out in the church so that it can be built up into one body. There is something incredibly glorious about the nature of God. And the cool thing is, is that God doesn't just make us observers of this phenomenon. He, in fact, writes it onto our hearts. This morning we read in Genesis 1 that God created the heavens and the earth and all the things that are below but then he pauses, and in verse 26, he does something fascinating. And God said, let us, notice the plurality there, make man in our own image. See, God is many things. God is holy, God is love, God is personal, merciful, benevolent. And these are just to name a few of some of his great qualities. And somehow, in some way, though, God writes into our souls, into our DNA, this nature of his. We want to be social. We desire to form communities. We yearn to see selfless giving, to selfless love. And so what do we do? We create families. There's an expression of this community. Friend circles, powwows. We can unite around things like culture, language, music, food. And we find expression and then we share these things and it, and it goes out into social media, like Facebook and Instagram and blogs. And it is all focused on this itch to belong. We want to connect to something greater than ourselves. 
And I know for many of you, you come to church for this very reason. You come to find community with fellow believers. You come to hear the gospel message preached. Perhaps you come also to hear our talented choir, or the skillful playing of Joanna, or Menzies shredding it up on the guitar. But in all of this, you want to share and you want to belong, to know and be known, to love and be loved. To do something God has called us specifically to do, to join, to meet in community, and to share. So what do we do? We, we grow our families here. We, we share life with one another. We eat together. You know, some of the things that we do here, we spend more, we're going to spend more time here at this church together than we do with some of our biological family. It's important to get community right. And what happens when we become multi-ethnic, more multicultural, people of more ages come in with different socioeconomic backgrounds, people are making different paychecks, People might come with a different, different political or social views. Will our earlier definition of community suffice? Are emotions and a simple set of formalities going to unite us in this bond of peace? See, everything in creation prior to God making man was to display his power, his majesty, his beauty, his glory. It pointed to a creator, it pointed to a source, it pointed, it pointed to an intelligent design. But in the next step of creation, God does something a little different. With intentionality, all creation is supposed to demonstrate the glory of God. But man is supposed to reflect that in something more. Man is actually supposed to represent what God is like. Man is to image something about God's nature. And as his image bearers, we do to some degree every single day reflect this Trinitarian nature of God. We represent a communal God. We are social beings. We long for community, to share, to love. Why do we do those things? Because that's how God made us, because that's who God is. He made us hardwired to reflect his distinct communal nature within ourselves. So we point and we reflect, we mirror and shine this image of God. And so God has prepared us, those of us who have been redeemed, to be in unity with his Son. And if unity within his Son, then unity with one another. We are weaved on this unbreakable foundation of his sacrifice on the cross. So Paul, again, reiterates oneness. We have one God, one faith, one body, one hope. And so with this knowledge in hand, we see how Paul now applies it in the coming verses. See, if you look back at the beginning of verse 7 in the text, Paul is talking about this oneness, but then he inserts this word, but. Now, what he's trying to say is, after all this oneness, he's, but something's happening. Grace has been distributed to each believer accordingly and given gifts to build up the body that we have received. Well, those of us who are called born again. And they are given to varying degrees, but they all have a purpose. They have a purpose of unifying us. And sadly, there was a problem before the giving and the receiving of these gifts. Christ had to descend and then ascend in order to give us these gifts. If you notice in the text, Paul throws in parentheses in verse 9 the following. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So before Paul goes on to talk about the gifts, he interjects a thought about Christ. And what he's saying is, let us not forget what Christ our Lord has done to purchase our unity.
Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, stepped in, stepped out of glory and humbled himself into the likeness of man. See, as I was talking about Genesis, there's a problem with the picture that I had when God created us as as his um, image bearers. Because in two chapters later, our forefather Adam would sin in the garden and forever corrupt our image of God. Instead of us reflecting the good, perfect, personal, loving, kind, caring God that we were supposed to, rather we turned inward and we began attempting to glorify ourselves. We attempted to achieve our own oneness, autonomy from God, independence, and we displaced the glory of God our Creator um, and then attempted to separate ourselves from Him. Adam, caught in his sin, first blames his wife, which, guys, is a terrible thing to do. And when that comes back to bite him, he has the audacity to point the blame at his Creator. No, God, you are responsible for my sin because you gave me this wife. You gave me this woman. You were the one who was at fault. And thus began our revolt and our rebellion. Titus 3 puts it this way, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. In other words, he's saying, we were fools. We hate authority. We think we have controls of our desires, but in fact, we are being controlled by them. We are under the illusion that we are being good and righteous toward one another, when in fact, behind one another's backs, we tear each other down. We envy and we covet the happiness and success of others. And in actuality, we have zero unity when we're left to our sin. In the final conclusion, we hate one another, and we would gladly throw one another under the bus if we would save our own skin. But there's hope. Paul goes on, And when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the works done to us, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the eternal hope of the eternal life. Christ has accomplished a wonderful gift of salvation. He descended from heaven. And now that he has accomplished that work, he has ascended in glory and power and he is now dispersing gifts into his church. See, when Adam willingly committed high treason against God Almighty and stood in utter defiance of all that he was, God should have rightly destroyed him on the spot. But instead, God, who is rich in mercy and patience, gives Adam grace, and he sheds blood to cover him and his wife's sin. See, before Christ ascended, you were cut off. You were alienated. Um, We were separated from God. And we operate with a sin-stained image of Him. We are clawing at other things, other desires, other gods, and we are mirroring back our depravity and separation instead of the glory of our Creator. And this reveals itself in our churches sometimes, does it not? We condemn and we silently judge and critique others harshly. We make wrong conclusions about life together. We assume wrongly conversations that we have. We stay silent. And then we slowly begin to fulfill Titus 3. But Christ in love prepared something better. By the power of the Spirit, He disperses out varying levels of gifts to His church in order to build it up, in order to restore what was broken. He has redeemed man back to God, but He has also redeemed man back to one another, to the glory of the Creator. 
As I titled my sermon, we are a blood-bought community. This comes at a price. And if we have any hope of a bond at peace, it is going to be through the atoning, sacrificial, and kind love of our Savior. So looking back at our text in verse 11, Christ has gifted us very specifically in some capacity to build His church into unity. And if you are in Him today, and you call Him Lord, there is a gift that you can give back to the church. It's automatic. The verse describes some of the following. Here are some of the gifts that it describes. Some of us are evangelists. Some of us are teachers. Some of us shepherd and pastor. Some of us do music very well. Some of us nurture, build up. Um, some of us encourage. Our personalities are different. We, some of us are extroverted. Some of us are in, introverted. Some of us plan very well. Some of us are hospitable. And some of us are handy around the church. And some of us are menzi, and we have each and every one of those gifts, and I envy him. But, but in reality, every single part, no matter what gift you have, it should be used to build up your brothers and sisters here at church. It should be building up the saints. And in this way, when we do this, we are ref- dimly reflecting what God has done at the cross. And it reflects the interconnectedness and the harmonious nature of the Trinity. We are many parts that is very apparent in our church in Woodside. But we don't have to be disjointed. We may have varying tastes and preference, but we don't have to have disunity. There's no need to be envious of one another and who's been dispersed this gift or that gift. No, we, we are just happy to be in the body, helping it grow, and being joined together as one by the blood of His Son. Paul in 1 Corinthians gives us um, a great example of this. And this is what he says. I need to drink some water For just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. He goes on. For the body does, does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would, make it, would that make it any less part of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged all the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If we were all a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So the point of community becomes clearer. To build up the body, to build up one another, We do so by making much of Christ. We do so when we have a sober mind about Him. And here's the good news. Christ has already purchased your ticket into this community. There's no sign-up sheet necessary. You don't have to be the best in gym class to be drafted. There's no distinction, male, female, young, old, rich, poor. You are in. And not only are you in, God has given you some particular precious gift that somehow will affect the rest of the body. Do not withhold yourself from one another in community. Let us give of ourselves in Woodside. Let us live like one body. So, in wrapping up all these ideas, I want to put a nice bow on everything. So what is Christian community? It is a celebrated unity in Christ Jesus to reflect the wholeness and the perfection found in the Trinity. How do we build community? Well, we do so by using the gifts we have been given in Christ when we are born again and called to Him. 
So now we, we, must, we must ask, how can we practically do community together? How does this work? And I think, it, I think it's best if you read verses 11 through 16 again. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and of the stature and the fullness of Christ, so that we might not be children no longer, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And here's the most important part. Rather, speaking in truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together, held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So there are three points and applications that I want to speak about, whichever, makes you, whichever one sounds better to you. Number one, Commit yourselves to Scripture and to the hearing and teaching of God's Word. Ephesians 4.12 says we need to be equipped, which means we need to put on something. This means that people have gifts to teach and to reveal us truths from God's Word to equip us. We need to be asking questions and digging deep into God's Word. If you are old, older and married, there is great wisdom that you can give to young couples like Jenny and myself on how to maintain our covenant, our love, and how our marriage is a greater reflection of Christ and the church. Those who can volunteer, do so cheerfully. Help out the kids. Ask to lead a Bible study. Share your thoughts on current events and shamelessly express yourself when you don't know or don't have an answer because we are of one faith. When you read articles or Maybe you hit a snag at work at sharing the gospel with someone. Talk about it. Share it. Discuss what went wrong in those moments. And be built up with one another. Challenge one another in love. Ask questions and be vocal. Let Woodside be a safe place that we can openly discern what the Word of God says so that we can build one another up. And let us not foolishly think that Matt or Vijay or any other preacher that stands here is going to be able to dump everything you need to know about God in like a four-week series and cover everything. No, we need to be committed to the daily nourishing of our souls through God's Word. We need to hear Him, to be taught by others, and to teach. Number two, fellowship. We need to gather together and avoid isolations, according to Ephesians 4, 15-16. If every Christian has been given a certain gift that builds up the body, well, you can be sure that there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. You are not going to build someone up in love from your own little island. It is a tragedy when some of our evangelical circles tell people that they can stay home on a Sunday, hear God, hear sermons, hear podcasts week after week, and play some awesome YouTube music, and think that they have a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. How can that be possible if Jesus Christ's main concern is his church and the building up of that church? And if you are not joining with that church and uniting with them, how can you say you have this relationship with Christ? Hebrews says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to do life together. We need to be relational because growth does not happen any other way. 
If you are sitting on gifts from God that are given to you to help the church and you remain silent or don't come to church, you are in fact in sin. At worst, you may not even be a believer. That means making a conscious effort to come to church every Sunday, giving our time, our energy, our affections, our resources, not because we can earn God's favor this way, don't get me wrong, or that we can earn brownie points with God. Rather, we give selflessly because we see the selfless act of our Savior who laid down His life for us. And as we do that, we get to commune together, we get to build relationship, and then we get to lock arms and work and be a force for good in the community here at Woodside and preach the gospel to those who don't know it. The third and last point is to speak truth and love together and to one another. We need to highly speak of Jesus and his gospel. You don't receive the life-transforming, sin-destroying, dead-raising Jesus and then hide him behind a rock or a closed curtain. It means that we can't be silent. Share your joy. Share your passion. You can't look at the gospel and think, well, here's a neat idea. I've been forgiven. Uh, I've been saved from my own unrighteousness. I'm being saved from hell, and I get to come to church every week now, which is, which is kind of nice. No, that, that's a, such a dampening thing to think about. You need to be passionate. There's something passionate that we need to think about when we think of Jesus. And the Bible says that angels long to look into these things. Angels do not have a mediator between them and God. When Satan fell and the angels followed him, they have no mediator. That's it. There is no restoration for them. Yet God, in our rebellion and our sin, He restores us. And the psalmist says, God, what is man that you are mindful of us? The angels long to peer into the mystery of faith and the gospel. How much more should the truth be ever on our lips, ready to share and speak joyfully about the great hope that we have? The gospel never gets old, it never loses flavor, and it is and will always be of first importance in all that we do. And with that being said, I, I want to close with two things, with a warning and an encouragement. First, the warning. Before Matt asked me to do this sermon, um, I admittedly say that Jenny and I were struggling deeply with community here at Woodside. And it's not because you guys aren't loving and kind and wonderful people. But we had this, de this deep sense of longing for more. We had experienced church in many different ways in the past, and we weren't receiving that same expectation here. And this feeling, it, it was a judgment on our life here, a feeling that we were missing out on something better, something hipper, something cooler, something young, younger, something more mainstream that would nourish us and make us feel more spiritual. What we had not realized was that our version of community was not taking the form of unity. Rather, it began to be increasingly disoriented, and we increasingly became discontent with our purpose and with our relationships here at Woodside. So I knew something was wrong. So I went to my, my bookshelf, which is very small, and I pulled out a book. And there was a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor during World War II who was an activist in Germany, a pastor fighting against the Nazi regime and trying to save Jewish people. And I read this from the book. One who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. He is looking for some extraordinary social experience which he has not found elsewhere. He is bringing in muddled and impure desires. 
he goes on, the danger of being poisoned is at its root, and the danger of confusing the Christian brotherhood with some wishful idea of religious fellowship. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. I think that bears repeating. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. And so in a brief moment as I was reading this, God had turned my notion of what fellowship was on its head. And I had realized I no longer desired the gospel to be a forerunner in all that we do. I desired my version of community. I desired a lesser version, an ethereal version of community that would make me feel good. And that we would be somehow blow up and become the coolest and hippest church this side of 53rd Avenue. Yet I had in effect said, the gospel and the work of Christ is not enough. I had thought, let me impart my version of community that I've seen. Let me grow and sustain God's people. Surely I know better. I was prideful and I was arrogant, jealous and envious. And I began to do hateful things, the very thing I set out to love. So first, I would like to publicly apologize for both Jenny and I. First to our God, who we ignorantly attempted to displace in a Bible-preaching, gospel-seeking, and growing Christian community. And then secondly, I want to apologize to you guys, my church member and my family. I'm sorry for marginalizing our relationships with you guys and our growth here. I'm sorry for unknowingly poisoning the well of fellowship with my notions that there's something better. We apologize for letting discontent and comparison cloud our love and our desire for you. You guys are a wonderful group of people, and I am learning every Sunday more and more to find ways to love you. And I invite you to come up to me and to Jenny and to invade our personal space and make it awkward for a little while so that we can grow in unity and love in the building up of this place. You have shown, you have shown us great kindness and patience, and we thank you and we ask for your forgiveness. Lastly, a thought struck me about Paul's predicament in the beginning of the verse. In all the letter that he's writing, he is actually, in all of this, he's in, he's in prison right now. He's, and I personally don't think that he likes being in prison. I mean, he is separated, he's on lockdown, and he's away from the people that he loves. And he's probably being mistreated to some degree because of the sharing of the gospel, this preaching of this message for the salvation of God's people. And when I think of what Paul might say to us today, if he stood here in this pulpit, is that it is worth it. It is worth living out the call that God has given you. It is worth sacrificing of yourself. It is worthy of rotting in jail for it. It's worth even dying for it. Why? Because of the joy and hope that you can have in Christ is immeasurable. And it is your everything. He says in Philippians, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of just knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may simply gain Christ. If we live, it is for Christ. If we die, it is gain to go and be with Him. And I will close with this quote on Christ and community. This is from the same book again. I have community with others, and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. 
the more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else be between us recede, and the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another, holy and for all eternity. Let's close in prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, I ask that, that this message and that your spirit would come and that we would be challenged this day at Woodside to think about how we do community. Lord, how are we reflecting your Trinitarian nature? How are we building one another up and giving of our gifts and of ourselves? Lord, to your glory, how do we make much of Christ in all that we do? Lord, we thank you for our sacrifice, the shed blood of your Son who comes in to purchase our unity. Without him, we would be hating one another and we would be rivaling. But because of you, Lord, your forgiveness and your shaping of our souls, we can come together and grow into a profound unity where we can be harmonious and we can be communal. Lord, I pray that your word would go out and that we would share with others the majestic nature of God and we would think, Lord, of our image and the high calling that we have from you. So God, would you be with us this day? May your word go forth. We love you and we praise you. Now let's let us sing songs of joy to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.